Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Philippians 3, Romans chapter 7, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I'm just so grateful for this body that gathers on a Thursday night, hungering and thirsting for the Word of God. And I pray now, as we continue our study through this incredible letter, that we would be encouraged just like the church of Philippi was encouraged. And Lord, I pray that you would use this letter in our hearts the same way you used it in theirs, by the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's do a little bit of review since we've been out of it for a week. We know that Paul's in jail. And while he's in jail, he's writing an encouraging thank you card to the Philippian church. The reason why, so let me just say, thank you cards are biblical, okay? They're encouraging, they inspire, and they motivate. And it says that you're grateful for the gift that was given. Now, here's what happened. This church sent Paul a financial gift. And remember, when you were in jail, unless somebody was taking care of you, you were in trouble. So they sent a financial gift. But they also sent a young man by the name of Epaphroditus to minister to Paul while he was in jail. So he writes this thank you letter. Now, Paul is also aware, and possibly through Epaphroditus, that there is a problem between two people in this church. Now, it so happens to be two ladies, but wherever there are more than one person, there is the potential for a problem, man or woman. And so Paul is going to use this thank you letter basically to encourage them and to disciple them in this particular issue. So in order to solve this problem in chapter 1, he reminds them to walk worthy of the gospel and that they, that they have a union in the fellowship of the gospel. And we learn that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, he reminds them of the way that Christ thinks, that he thinks in a consoling a comforting, affectionate, merciful, and gracious way. In fact, when you, if you remember when God was introducing himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, the way he introduced himself was the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious. And mercy and grace is the way that Jesus thinks. But Jesus is also humble and obedient, And there in chapter 2, he says, listen, I know some of you would say, well, I'm not Jesus. He gives two human examples of people that had and thought the way that Jesus thought. And he gave Timothy as an example, a person of proven character. And then he gave Epaphroditus as an example, someone who was willing to humble himself and even die for the sake of Jesus Christ. So he tells the ladies and tells the people that are having the problem, if you would flip over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 for just a moment, he says, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. In other words, the same way that Timothy and Epaphroditus thought, the same way that I'm teaching you that the way that Christ thinks, that's the way that I want you to think. Now, I want us to keep that in mind. Because here in chapter 3... 
chapter 3 gives us insight as to the potential problem that was going on between these two people. A doctrinal debate. That's what they were having. And the enemy, he seems to oftentimes use doctrine to bring debate into the church to cause division. Well, I'm not talking about good doctrine. I'm not talking about true doctrine. He sometimes will use false doctrine to be able to bring division or heresy into the church. That's why Jude would exhort us to contend for the faith. We need to know the Bible, and we need to stand by it. And having done all, we need to stand. In fact, Paul, he sent Titus to Crete to set things in order because there was some bad doctrine going into the church. Well, the two doctrines that he's going to deal with and the two false doctrines that were ramping them, uh, going as a rampage through the church in the first century were two particular doctrines where teachers would go in the church behind Paul and preach their doctrine, which was false, in order for people to follow them and not follow Paul. These two doctrines, they were the Judaizers and the Gnostics. Even you say it, it's kind of like a you, Judaizers. It's like you can't even say it good without saying it with something in your mind. Everyone just go Judaizers. Yeah. Okay, be careful because we don't want to judge them, okay? Well, actually, we do. Oh, not judge them to condemnation. But we should know the Bible well enough that we could smell a Judaizer a mile away. That we could smell a Gnostic a mile away. Now, let's put our thinking cap on for just a moment. You're going to see on the screen what a Judaizer is. A Judaizer is someone who imposed the requirements of Mosaic law. Now, we're all adults here. Imagine if we had a little circumcision room, and every time you came to Christ, you had to walk to the side and get circumcised. No thank you. It's like, you leave, I'm, God bless you, God bless you, I'm finding a new church. I mean, but that's what they wanted to do. They thought, well, if you come to Christ, you've got to follow the Sabbath. You've got to eat Jewish food. So don't have any cheeseburgers because you can't cook a goat in its mother's milk. And don't have any pepperoni pizza. And definitely don't have a rare prime rib. How many of you didn't get a chance to eat before you came from work? (laughs) Sorry. I still love you. So what Paul calls them is the mutilators. They're the mutilators. That's a word that he implores. And they believe that salvation rested on obedience to the law. They were the Jesus and people. Well, yeah, come to Jesus and do the Sabbath. Come to Jesus and make sure you get circumcised. Come to Jesus and make sure you eat only these foods and follow these festivals. Well, we're saved by grace, not by works. So there's no Jesus and to salvation. They were the Judaizers. But then there were the Gnostics. Let me tell you who the Gnostics were. They believed that when you came to this special knowledge that you'd be saved. They believed that flesh was so corrupt that the spark of light from the ultimate being, they didn't even call him God, the ultimate being was trapped inside this sinful, fleshly, 
disgusting body. In fact, the Bible says their God was their belly. Now, let me explain what that means. They believed that if you knew that inside of you was this spark of light trapped in a prison of this flesh, that when you died with just this simple knowledge, you'd be saved. Now, the problem with the Gnostics were this. They believed you, your flesh could do anything it wanted because it's so evil and your spirit is so pure that you could live however you wanted to live. You could have 10 boyfriends at the same time, 10 girlfriends at the same time. It didn't matter because your flesh is so evil and so corrupt and your spark of light is so pure that nothing can touch it. And once you just have this knowledge, you can go to heaven and live any kind of life you wanted. Now, can you begin to see the problem with these two doctrines? How many of you, we got a problem. You're smelling the doctrinal issue. And what Paul is going to do in Philippians chapter 3 is he's going to help us understand these two doctrines. Paul, he constantly spoke out against these two doctrines. In Philippians chapter 3, we've learned, we're going to learn, we learned with Pastor Jason that they, he called them mutilators. He didn't have a trouble saying, you're wrong. Now, in our many roads lead to heaven kind of world that we live in, that there's nothing wrong with however you choose to worship God, that even if you believe in the virgin birth and you don't believe in the virgin birth, I mean, at least your heart is right. Paul would have called you on it. Paul would have said, no, you're wrong. You need to come to the truth. In fact, he exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20. He says, watch out for these false doctrines, these Gnostics. In Galatians chapter 2, the Bible says Paul withstood Peter to his face because he was wrong. You see, Paul... He wanted the church to have a relationship with Christ, not with religion. Paul, he knew the emptiness of religion and these false doctrines. Take a look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. Look what he says about him. Yet indeed, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge or experiencing a relationship of Jesus Christ my Lord for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. Now I know that sounds like a British word, rubbish, but it's a word that means garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. Now listen to what Paul says. I know the emptiness of this religion. I was a Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews. According to the law, I was blameless. And he says it's empty. And it's empty in comparison to the relationship that I have with Christ. And that relationship is sheerly by faith alone. You can't work yourself to heaven. You can't serve 52 Sundays in Kid Life Ministry and think because you've served 52 Sundays, you're on your way to heaven. The only thing that will save you is a belief in the Lord Jesus Christ, a confession with your mouth, and you shall be saved. There's no other requirement to come to God. Now, let me tell you, Paul, he had some things to count as loss. I mean, he had some major accomplishments. Pharisee of Pharisees? Hebrew of Hebrews, 
He says, I counted a loss. My position, my, 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 my prominence, my power, I consider it a loss. But Paul also had some skeletons in his closet. He was there at the death of Stephen and condoned it. And he says, I have to count that as loss. The sins of my past, I've got to count as loss. You see, his relationship with Christ, what he gained was so much more than the legalistic doctrine of the mutilators, of the Judaizers. And he gives us in verse 10 an explanation of what he gained. Would you take a look at verse 10? That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Listen to what Paul says. He says, I count everything as loss because I've gained a relationship with Christ. And here's what I've gained. I've gained the power of the resurrection. You see, Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he said that we should live our lives worthy of the gospel. He so cherished his relationship with Jesus that he wanted to do everything that Jesus told him to do. And listen carefully. And he trusted the Holy Spirit to give him the power to do it. Let me give you a Jesus story. It's John chapter 5. It's a great illustration of the power of the resurrection. Now you remember, you don't need to turn there. It's the pool of Bethesda. And there at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus goes to a man who's been crippled for 38 years. Now, this is such an example of the wilderness wandering. Because Deuteronomy 12 tells us that they wandered for 38 years, and then they stayed on the other side of the bank of the Jordan for two. So this guy's been sick for 38 years. John's trying to get a message across. And Jesus walks right up to the guy, and he goes, Do you want to be made well? Now, if that's me and I've been sitting there for 38 years, I would have said, yes. Yes, I would like to, but that, the man doesn't. He goes, every time I try to get up to go into the water so that I can be healed, no one's there to help me. That was not the question. It's not what is your problem. It's do you want to be made well? Amen. So he says, pick up your mat and walk. Now the guy has a choice. The guy has a choice. He has heard the word of God and his choice is, will I do it? We are faced with this choice each and every day. We hear the word of God, and then we have the choice to do it or not do it. Now, I don't know if he got a little tingle in his leg. I don't know what happened. But this man heard the word of God, and he began to stand up. You see, this is the power of the resurrection. Jesus speaks to us in his word. He gives us the choice to obey or not. And when we do obey, he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit to put into action the thing that he's asked us to do. Now keep that in mind. Because that's the power of the resurrection. He's given us the Spirit to do what he's asked us to do. We've got to take the step of faith to do what he's asking us to do. But then he says this. Now this won't go over well in our 21st century church. Paul said, I've gained the fellowship of his suffering. 21st century has such a different perspective of suffering than the first century believers. See, first century believers, they looked at suffering as like an, a badge of honor. I got to suffer for Jesus. Do you remember when the disciples got beat by the Sanhedrin in Acts? 
and they went rejoicing, singing. Do you remember when Paul in Acts chapter 16 had been beaten up there in Philippi and he's in jail and they came out of their stupor and they were singing hymns to God? You see, suffering to the first century was so different than the 21st century because I believe in the 21st century we are living in the generation of Job's friends. You're suffering. You must have done something wrong. Something, you must have done something wrong because we don't suffer any longer in the 21st century. We've evolved beyond suffering. I'm going to give you two names to prove it. The first name is Jim Elliott. Who knows Jim Elliott? Raise your hand. Okay, great. Here's the second name. The second name is John Chow. Who knows John Chow? There's a problem. In 1956, Jim Elliott landed on the beach of the Alka Indians, and him and his four friends were killed. He was a world-renowned hero for giving his life for the gospel. In 2018, John Chow landed on the North Sentinel Islands and he died preaching the gospel. And mission agencies and the world lambasted him for going to a people that he could have infected with disease for the sake of the gospel. There's the difference between 1956 and 2018. In 1956, Jim Elliott is awarded a hero for the gospel. And in 2018, John Chow is debated as to whether or not he should have given his life for the gospel to these, to these people. We've got a different perspective of the fellowship of suffering. But this was not the mentality of Paul's day. It was a badge of honor. When John was writing the Revelation, he says, listen, I'm in the tribulation with you. That's what he says in Revelation chapter 1, verse 9. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, Paul said, I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. They looked at the fellowship of the suffering as a badge of honor. Thirdly, he says, let me tell you what I've gained. I'm being conformed to his death. You see, because of what Christ had done for him, Paul made a decision like the man at the pool of Bethesda. I'm going to do whatever it is that you ask me to do because I'm going to walk in the newness of life. I'm not going to live in my sin. I'm going to cut my sin off so that I can live in the power of the resurrection being conformed to your death. And let me show you what, how he does this. Look at verse 11. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Here's what Paul is saying. He's not saying, I don't know if I'm going to be part of the resurrection or not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying in a first century language, if by any means, in other words, I'm going to give it everything I've got in the power of the Spirit to live the newness of life that Jesus has for me. That's what this word means. You see, he is making it very clear. If you just flip over a page to Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, he's already introduced this and he said this. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, verse 12. 
For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The power of the Spirit in you is working in you to change you. And Paul says in verse 12, I'm going to give it everything I've got. He reiterates it in Philippians chapter 3 verse 11. I'm going to give it everything I've got. And now what Paul's going to do in verse 12 to the end of this chapter, he's going to explain what it means if by any means I may attain to the resurrection. He's going to show us through his life the way that he is giving it everything he's got. Would you take a look? Philippians chapter 3, now we pick it up in verse 12. That, by the way, was our 25-minute introduction. But you're the Thursday night crew. You're willing to be here for two or three hours. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Not all of you said amen. All right. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. Not, Not that I already attained or am already perfected, but I press on. That I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. First point, I want you to write it down. Practice makes perfect. If you're going to give it everything you've got, practice makes perfect. You see, at this point, Paul is 30 years in the Lord. 30 years in the Lord. He's been about 25 years in ministry. And there's a truth that he's very aware of. He knows that positionally, Christ has perfected him. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. You'll see it on the screen. Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Look at the past tense. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Past tense. In our position with God, because of Jesus Christ, we have been perfected. There's nothing else we need to do to get into heaven because of the work of Jesus Christ. We don't work ourselves to heaven. Positionally, we've been perfected. So what Paul is preaching here is that we have a lifelong goal to press on in that perfection. Practically, we've got to work on being perfected. Positionally, we're perfected. But practically, we work on it each and every day. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. You'll see it on the screen, Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Therefore, you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He's communicating that there is a perfection that you live in through belief, but there's a perfection that you practice each and every day. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, we learn how we're perfected. He says this, But we all, that means all believers, we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, so we see that we're perfected are being transformed into the same image. So we can see the glory of the Lord, so we know positionally we're right before the Lord. But we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The Spirit's job is to make us more and more like Christ every day. Now, don't raise your hand. 
How many of you used to use naughty language? Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. You used to, but you don't now. Only if you hit your, ha- your, the, your thumb with a hammer, okay? But how many of you, you okay. How many of you used to watch things that you shouldn't? Don't raise your hand. But you used to watch things that you shouldn't have watched. How many of you used to be mean? Don't raise your hand because I won't be your friend, okay? How many of you used to be an angry person? Okay, I wasn't looking over here for any particular reason, okay? Maybe it's the spirit, I don't know. (laughs) I'm going to look over here, okay? How many of you were jealous, okay? How many of you struggle with envy like you used to? But now you can raise your hand. How many of you, how many of you are no longer like what you used to be? Raise your hand. You see, positionally, you've been perfected, but you don't get perfect until you work through it your entire life by the Spirit of God. Amen? So what Paul is saying, the great apostle Paul is, I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. Now, how many of you are still working on it? (laughs) If you didn't raise your hand, we'll talk to you later. He says, I'm not perfected, but I'm pressing on. Take a look at verse 13. He says this, brethren. Now, you got to stop there. We can't go on. Brethren. Brethren. See, Paul gives us the practice that makes us perfect. And the very first word he uses is brethren. It's important to remember that the person next to you is being transformed just like you that they're not perfect. You see, brethren means we're just a large family. And I know something about large families is one mess up after the next. Listen, we had nine kids, right? When we fixed one problem, the other one was crying. When we stopped this one from pulling the hair, the other one was biting. When we stopped that one from biting, this one was stealing. When we disciplined that one for stealing, the next one was, and I could go on down the list. In fact, listen, I'm going to write a book on parenting, okay? And the name of the book is God Bless You. (laughs) God Bless You. Now listen, (laughs) there's really God Bless You. We're family. We're all growing together. And you know the way that we raised our kids, my, my wife and I? You have grace for me. I'll have grace for you. Let's get through this thing together. Do you know the person next to you needs grace? Do you know they're going to mess up? Do you know their family? I'll never forget, we were living in the Bahamas, and my son did something he was not supposed to do. And I said, okay, son, we're going to go to the bathroom. And he knew, he knew what going to the bathroom meant. He said to me, Dad, if you spank me, I'm going to run to a camera. Seven years old, that's what he said to me. If you spank me, I'm going to run to a camera. We were in aisle seven. Now remember, we were living in the Bahamas. The Bahamas is much different than the United States of America. As we were going into aisle eight, there was this wonderful Bahamian woman. She had taken her shoe off 
she was literally whomping on her child with her shoe. My son is looking at this. She looks at me, sees that there's issues, and she said, boy, give him to me. I'll deal with him. And I said, it takes a village. Have him. (laughs) Don't leave me with her. I said, son, we're not living in the U.S. anymore. God bless you. That's, there's the name of the book. God bless you. We're a family, brethren. We've got to cut each other a break. The person sitting next to you is not perfect. Now hug your spouse and tell them sorry. <laughs> brethren. Now you've got to start there. Brethren, I do not count myself to... I really missed you guys. Can you tell? Like, I just missed you. All right, so let's go on. Brethren. I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the upward call, excuse me, I press for the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul now gives us the practice. The practice is forgetting the things that are behind and reaching towards the things that are ahead. In the big gospel language, we call this sanctification. Jesus prayed that we would be sanctified. He said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So the only thing my past is good for is for me to forget about it. That's what he says. We've got to forget it. Because let me tell you something about your past. You can't change it. You can only learn from it. And I want you to think about what Paul had to forget about. He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. His past, he was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I mean, when it came to the law, he says, I was blameless. But you know what else he had to forget about? He killed Stephen. Killed Stephen. There was no way he could change that. But the forgetting, forgetting that he's talking about is not actually that you don't remember because that's impossible. You can't forget your past. When Jesus looked at the man of Pool of Bethesda, what did he say? Pick up your mat and walk. I want you to pick up your history and I want you to walk with it. I want you to remember. And there's a reason why we remember, so that we never return to the vomit again. That's a reason we remember. So the forgetting that he's speaking about is not that we can forget it. It's that every time we think about it, we purpose to reach towards our future. Let me give you an example. How many of you, like Pastor Zach, you drive on your car till the red light comes on? There's no more gas. How many of you? Come on, I want to see your hands. Okay, really? (laughs) You drive your car and you want to see how far you can go, okay? Like, you just don't want to stop at the gas station. And that little red light has been on now for 25 miles. And you think you've got like three more miles to go. Now, how many of you are like me? I never let it go below a quarter of a tank because you don't ever know how long you're going to be on the 405. You could be on it for four, oh, five hours, right? I mean, it's like, you don't know how long you're going to be, so I don't ever let it go below a quarter of a tank. And if I ever get to red, 
I, I just am doing everything I can to get to a gas station. Now, can you imagine? I want you to think of it like this. The red light comes on, and the, now when the red light comes on, you looking in your rear view mirror going, oh, why did I go this far? I can't, I mean, how far did I go? And you don't put your eyes on the windshield. You just look at the rear view mirror. And all you're doing is regretting how far you came because your red light is on. No, the red light is simply there to remind you, get to a gas station. Look out your windshield. There's a reason the rear view mirror is as small as it is because you're only supposed to look at it for a moment to remind you to look forward. The red light in life of our past is only there to remind us of who we're aiming to be and who we weren't, but who we can become. Let me tell you this. We're to run a marathon. You don't run a marathon looking backwards. You're always reaching forward. So forgetting and reaching, you see, it's like the gas station. We have a goal. And the goal is to get to that gas station. The goal is to be like Christ. That's the upward call of God. And if we're constantly focusing on our, fa- on our past, let me, all right, let's do a little test. I want no one in this room right now to think of a white elephant. I don't want any of you to think of pizza. I don't want any of you to think of a prime rib. I don't want any of you to think of a hot fudge sundae, chocolate mousse, Kit Kats. No one think about them. I definitely don't want you thinking about chocolate at all. Okay? And the last thing I want you doing is thinking about like this nice, wonderful Mediterranean salad, a little feta cheese, some olives, cucumbers, tomatoes. Don't think about it. Please do not think about a salad right now. What am I doing? All I'm doing is putting your mind on it. But if I choose with every thought of my history to say, I'm going to look at Christ. And I'm only using my history to remind me to look at Christ. Then I will say, then I will say this. If I, was an, if I was an angry person, Christ is kind. Chet aimed towards kindness. If you had a hateful past, Christ is loving. And I'm going to beam my way towards being loving. I'm going to long suffer. I'm going to be kind. I'm going to do the things that will help me to be loving. And my focus is not going to be on my history. My focus is going to be what I'm reaching forward for. Because by reaching forward, I'm keeping my relationship with Christ as my utmost prize. Now, how can I reach forward? Gang, we need to have an active devotional life. We've got to have an active devotional life. You see, reaching forward is keeping our relationship with Jesus as our utmost prize. So we've got to have an active devotional. God's got to be speaking to our lives. Jesus went up to the guy at the pool of Bethesda. He gave him the word of God. That man took a step of faith and the power of the spirit came upon him. If we're not having an active devotional life, we won't know what to do. We need to have an active prayer life. You've got to be talking to Jesus. And what I do in my life, I've told you before, I've got prayer reminders. This billboard reminds me to pray for that. When I get off of the Torrance exit, I pray for this. The Torrance exit reminds me, pray for this. 
When I'm pulling onto the parking lot, I pray for the people in the church. I have prayer reminders on my drive to work because we're so quick and so busy in life that I've got a purpose to remind myself each and every day to pray. And that's why how I do it. I'm to pray without ceasing. We need to have be actively serving the body of Christ. See this gang that's going to El Salvador? They're doing it because they have a relationship with Jesus and they want to serve the Lord God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. So Paul says, look at verse 15, Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind. So I want you to have the mind of Christ. Your spiritual maturity is shown by the mind of Christ in you. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. You see, spiritual maturity is found in the security of our relationship with Jesus. In Proverbs chapter 24, the Bible says, Though a righteous man falls seven times, he gets back up again. Because a mature person knows, I can't change my past. I've got to reach towards my future. And the only thing that can change my past is when I confess my sin to God. And he will be faithful and he will be just to forgive me of my sin and to cleanse me not of some righteousness, but all righteousness. So the only thing that I can do with my past is confess it to the Lord. That's maturity. Maturity is trusting in my relationship by forgetting that past and reaching forward. Now, I love the Apostle Paul. He says this. Listen again. As many of you are mature, have this mind. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal it to you. Paul is not forcing the believers to change. He's trusting the Spirit to minister to them. Because let me tell you, I'm not going home with you. I'm not going home with you. The Spirit is. The Spirit will. And He'll convict you about your marriage. He'll do a better job than I can. He'll convict you about your relationships. He'll convict you about your behavior and your attitude, your conduct. He will do a great job. And Paul knows that. He knows the job of the Spirit is to glorify Christ in you. And so he's going to convict you until you choose to change. He's going to constantly convict you of your sin so that you will be conformed into the image of Jesus. So he encourages them. And he encourages them, listen, all I want you to do in verse 16 is live what you know. You're not responsible to live what you don't know. But if you know to be kind, guess what? Be kind. If you know to be loving, guess what? Be loving. If you know right from wrong, then choose right and not wrong. You're only responsible for what you know, he says. And he's trusting the Spirit with what you know to do the work. Now, Paul exemplified this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7 is the struggle, sin struggle of Paul. Romans chapter 7 is the sin struggle of Paul, and he's wrestling. Why do I do what I don't want to do, and why don't I do what I know I'm supposed to do? And in Romans chapter 7, he's revealing his own sanctification process. But he also reveals an answer. 
You see, some people get stuck in Romans 7 without reading the last two verses. I want you to see it with me. Verse 24 of chapter 7. Maybe you'll underline this. Oh, wretched man that I am. Paul knows what's going on in his own life. Who will um, deliver... Excuse me, my Bible's turned. Who will... uh, Oh, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. Paul says God is the one that's delivering him through Jesus Christ. God is the one that's giving him the power to change day by day. God is the one that's helping him to forget the past and use it so he can be reminded to reach toward his future. He said, oh, wretched man that I am, oh, thanks be to God, Jesus Christ is the one that's delivering me. Secondly, I want you to write it down. In order to give it all to God, you've got to follow the pattern. You've got to follow the pattern. Go back with me, if you would, to Philippians, Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, let's pick it up in verse 17. Brethren, join in following my example. And note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. Number two, write it down, follow the pattern. You see, as a leader in the church, Paul knew his responsibility to set a pattern, walking in the power of the resurrection to become more like Christ. He knew that that was his responsibility, but it wasn't his responsibility as, uh, as alone. He said, I also want you to note others who are doing the same thing. You know why? Because this is all of our pursuits, not just leaders. We are to follow the pattern. We're all called to set an example of following the pattern. Now, I need to express what this word pattern means. It means, at the time, on a hammer was a certain, uh, like a seal. And what you would do on a coin is you would take that hammer and you would hammer that pattern into that coin. And that became the dollar, became $2 or $3, depending on the pattern that you stamped. Now, let me tell you what they did. They never wanted to remake the coins. So with every new leader, there was a new coin. And so they would use the same old coin, but they would take the new hammer and they would hammer the new image on the old coin. So there were different shapes, different sizes of a coin, but it was all worth whatever was stamped on it. Even though it was bigger or smaller, whatever was stamped on it, that was the pattern. That was how much it was worth. And anything else, if it didn't have that exact pattern, was a forgery. Let me give you an example of a forgery. Anything that calls itself ice cream and doesn't have milk is not ice cream. (laughs) My daughter brought home soy cream. Don't call it cream. There's no cream in it. No, Dad, it's really good. No, it's not. It tastes like cardboard. How can you say this tastes good? She brought almond cream home. No, there's no... If it doesn't have milk in it, it's not ice cream. You could call it frozen goodness. You could call it frozen blah or frozen cardboard. I don't care, but you can't call it ice cream. It's a forgery. No matter how you dress it up, 
or how much stevia you put inside of it. It's the same thing. There's a new regime in your life. And your coin, no matter what size it was, it had the devil stamp on it. Jesus came along, he took his hammer, and he put his imprint on you. That pattern is what we are to live up to. Christ is our pattern. Anything else is a forgery. So don't bring soy and almond to heaven. Now, I know the illustration seems to fall short, but I want you to understand there's one pattern. His name is Jesus. And if you don't like his pattern, that's not his concern. His concern is not your happiness. His concern is your holiness. And through holiness, I guarantee there's going to be inexpressible joy. Follow the pattern. Number three, I want you to write it down. You're going to have to deal with some culture shock. If you're going to give it all you've got, you've got to deal with some culture shock. Take a look. Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to pick it up there in verse 18. For many walk, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven. heaven. we got to deal with culture shock. You see, Paul in chapter 3 dealt with the mutilators. He dealt with the Judaizers. But now he's dealing with the Gnostics, and he gives us their doctrine. He says, whose God is their belly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 13, Paul uses the Gnostic doctrine and he says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food when he's speaking about sexual immorality. Let me tell you what this phrase meant. When you're hungry, you eat. And what the Gnostics believe is, whatever your flesh commands, just do it. Your flesh is evil. So if your flesh wants to be sexually immoral, just do it. Because flesh is evil. Food for the stomach, stomach for the food. It's the way we're designed. You've got to feed the flesh. That was their doctrine. He said their doctrine, their, whose glory is their shame. They actually boasted about how many girlfriends they had in the night. I'll never forget my roommate in college. He had a black book back, black when there, back when there were black books. I could only sleep in my dorm room one night a week. For an entire semester, I slept in my car. He had a different girl every night. So I went to him and I said, dude, like, aren't you tired? I, I told him, I said, I am. And I go, how can you handle all these women? Like, this is overwhelming. And he goes, actually, I was going to talk to you. Like, why don't you have a woman? And I said, well, because I love Jesus. And I don't want to have women like this. I, I want to wait for my wife. He laughed at me. He goes, that is so yesteryear. <laughs> he boasted about the amount of sin that he was doing. There's no conviction in the Gnostic. You see, one of the proofs of your salvation is that when you do something wrong, you know it. The world doesn't know when they do something wrong because the Spirit is not in them. They don't have the same convictions. So they have the little black books, and we look at them and go, I can't believe you did that. But they don't have the Spirit of God in them 
to convict them. Thirdly, he says, they set their mind on earthly things. Do you remember the story that Jesus gave? Eat, drink, be merry. And he said, you fool. Don't you know tomorrow you're going to die? See, if we keep our mind on the things of the earth and temporal things, this is a Gnostic way of thinking. Now imagine you're in the Philippian church. You're sitting here listening to Paul preach this whole thing, and you're the two ladies. You're Yodia or Syntyche. But right about now, you're like slipping in your chair, like, I know this is coming to me. Imagine this moment. Now, I know you can. How many of you sometimes when I'm teaching, you think your wife called me? No one's going to raise their hand. How many of you have sensed while I'm teaching, like, how did he know? I don't know. I'm just going to be faithful to teach the Word of God. And as the Word of God goes forth, you can either fall in your chair or you can have spiritual ears to hear. And like the man at the pool of Bethesda, choose to do what Jesus is asking you to do and trust the power of the Holy Spirit. But let me tell you something. You're a citizen of heaven. And let me tell you, heaven's a little different than the earth. And so while I'm teaching or someone is teaching the word of God, you can choose to lay down and be crippled your whole life like the pool of Bethesda man could have, or you can choose to pick up your mat and walk. It's up to you. But let me tell you something. Some things are going to bother you. Some things are going to be like, I can't forgive that person. That person is evil. I'm not going to go the second mile. What do you mean turn the other cheek? Some of the things I'm going to say as far as being a citizen of heaven may bother you. Can I give you some advice? No matter how you feel about it, choose to walk by faith, not by feelings. Choose to walk by faith. When you feel the culture shock between a citizen of earth and a citizen of heaven, default citizen of heaven. Finally, stand fast in the Lord. If by any means you're going to attain to the resurrection, stand fast in the Lord. Here's where we close. For our citizenship, verse 20, is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will... Transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Now, this will either happen by death or by rapture. According to the working by which he is able to even subdue all things to himself. In other words, what he's saying to him is, don't think him transforming your body is a big deal. He can do whatever he wants. And then he says this, therefore, sums it up, my beloved longed for brethren. He's not mad at them. He's not frustrated with them. He loves them my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord. He sums up this section about being a citizen. I want you to take a look at the screen. You're going to see it. He says this, as a citizen of heaven, we're to eagerly wait for our Savior. The first thing, put into practice the things which work toward our perfection. Practice perfection. uh, Practice makes you perfect. He says this, Follow the pattern of Christ. Don't go after the forgeries. He says this, deal with the culture shock. 
When you have something in your life that isn't like being a citizen of heaven, choose to default faith. And then he says, eagerly wait. Eagerly wait. Jesus described this for us in Matthew chapter 25. You don't need to turn there. He gives us a parable of ten virgins. Five had oil, five did not. The five that weren't filled with oil or filled with the Holy Spirit, they were left behind. Then he gives a story of a man who goes away and he gave five talents to one, two talents to another, and one talent to another. He came back and the person that did five had five more. The person who got two got two more. The person who had one, he didn't have any more. He, he hid it because he was afraid. Fear, not faith. And these two parables, he's getting across a point. We're to be watching. We're to be working. That's what it means to eagerly wait. Watching for his return. We're living, reaching forward. We're working in our faith with whatever gift he's given you that you are currently in the fanning of the flame of that gift. You're not just a pew sitter. You are an active worker. And church, church, this defines what it means to eagerly wait. This gets us to our goal. And one day, Jesus is going to look at us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. A church. I said to the people in Israel, I'll say to you, you hear the story of the pool of Bethesda. And what you need to do is first go, I'm the lame man. I'm the one who can do nothing without Jesus. And I don't know what word Jesus spoke to you tonight. But now you have a choice. I don't know if I can do it. Just stand up. Just reach forward. Use your past to simply perfect your future. Get your eyes off the rearview mirror and look through the windshield. And trust that as you're standing, the Holy Spirit will give you the power to do something that you did not think you could do. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I'm so grateful for you and your word. I'm just so thankful that you've given us your word and that We have you to depend on. You're going to transform our bodies. You've got the power to do it. So I pray, Lord, that we would be being transformed as we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.